Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 57. My name is Edison Magalhães here at uh, SDRS. Hello, my name is Giovanni Trevisan with the Swine Disease Report System. Hello, my name is Guilherme at SDRS. Hello, Daniel Linhares, also with the Swine Disease Reporting System. So thanks for joining us today. So we, the report of today, we're going to cover the findings from the previous month, the month of October 2022, uh, regarding the, the swine disease reporting system information. Uh, but today we also have the pleasure of having here uh, Dr. Andrea Gonçalves Arruda joining the SDRS podcast. Dr. Arruda is currently an assistant professor at The Ohio State University in the Department of Veterinary Preventive Medicine. And Dr. Aruda got her DVM from the Sao Paulo State University and her master's from the University of Minnesota. Uh, her PhD was at the University of Guelph uh, in Canada, where she worked with the applications of novel epidemiological tools for disease control and prevention in food production animals. Dr. Aruda has developed research focused on swine emerging and re-emerging disease dynamics, applying this knowledge to better understand how to control and prevent them. Dr. Ruder, it's a pleasure for us to have you here at the Swine Disease Reporting System podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me today, SDRS team. Thank you, Dr. Ruder, for being here with us. It's, a, as Edson said, a real pleasure for us. But before we start, let's, uh, Guilherme, can you provide us an update what's going on in October for in the Swine Disease Report System data? Yes, today we are going to cover the reports kind of differently because we are having a high activity of respiratory pathogens and systemic pathogens. So we are going to talk about all of them instead of go page by page. So talking about all these pathogens, first virus, influenza, and mycoplasma, we are having an increased activity of, of positive submissions this month. First with birds, we are having an increased activity in winter market category that is increasing for the second month consecutively. And for mycoplasma and influenza, we are having an increase in all age categories. So for this is expected for this time of the year, since it is this season that is coming, we are having this increase in respiratory pathogens. But when we move to the disease diagnosis, that is just data from ISU-VDL, we are also having spikes in the overall respiratory uh, pathogens. And some of other pathogens, we have an increased number of submissions as well for them, for confirm this tissue diagnosis, such as streptococcus suis, influenza, truperella pyogenes, and also mycoplasma. And, well, lots of activity going on there, Guilherme. Yes. Any, any information shared by the advisory group of how they have been dealing with these pathogens at this time of the year? Yes, the, the advisory group mentioned that it's good to not have all of these pathogens occurring at the same time in your production system. So you have to have some animal health interventions before this season starts. So they can apply, for example, vaccination of first virus before this season starts or mass vaccination of influenza to avoid to have these pathogens at the same time. And also protocols for eradication and control of mycoplasma. So if these kind of measures you, measures, you can decrease the losses that you have in the production system to have multiple pathogens circulating there. Well, you mentioned about PERS, right, that there is an increased activity there, but also if you look for the sequence, it looks like there is also more requests for that. Any comments from the advisory group on this specific topic? 
Yes, looking to the SDRS data, like retrospectively, since 2020, we are having an increasing number of uh, PERS virus sequencing submitted to these VDLs that we have in our project. And when we see this last month, we also have an increase in the PERS virus sequencing. And one, one question that we made, that we asked to our advisory group, if something is going on with PERS that we are having, that they are testing more for sequencing. And one of the and most of the answers were related with, with the severity of the cases that they are having the production system that they are having more losses with this virus and also more clinical signs. And at the same time, some of them are are sequencing more because of the effect of the L1C variant that emerged uh, recently, and they are testing frequently to see if these specific strains circulating in the farms. Wow, interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And how about the enteric pathogens? Do you have any activity there? Yes, uh, it's not only the respiratory ones that we are having problems this month. Uh, about the enteric pathogens for PED, for example, uh, we had a trend to decrease in the last month, but in October right now, they are increasing again, mainly in the winter market category that we are having an increase in percentage of positive submissions for PED. And also in the cyclic regression model, when we look, this is still above the expected for this part of the year. What does this mean? Well, for our advisory group, uh, we ask if this is, is still like a problem from the first semester that we have breaks and maybe these piglets are coming downstream here uh, at this time of the year, or if it was like more lateral breaks that were occurring. And they mentioned that both things are happening like a lot of piglets that are coming positive from the first breaks that occur in the first semester, but also they have some small lateral breaks that are, that are occurring at the same time. Mm -hmm. so just another reminder of the importance of biosecurity and biocontainment, uh, right? Especially at this time of the year in that growth finish population, because it's, it's at this time of the year that they amplify the viruses that find a way to the other growth finish, but also to back to the south farms and we're kind of seeing this the initial uh, it's, uh, of the beginning of that curve right now so just another reminder biocontainment biosecurity simple things like showering in showering out and like you said uh, immunizing the pigs and kind of be being uh, do, do what you can in terms of people and pig flow right uh, shared resources such as pig, people uh, vaccination crews that removal that kind of stuff gotta uh, uh, watch that, especially this time of the year, to prevent a, a big wave of out outbreaks here going going into this fall and winter. That's very important, Benio, to, to remind that because when you say we see that, that's very clear what's going on now for birds and influenza. This major role of the winter finish age category that there is this increase, huge increase in number of site, uh, detection, but that also occurs for the entire coronavirus, like PED and Delta coronavirus. So. It's a very, very important factor, the, 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 the detection and the activity of these agents in the winter market age category. No, very good. Thanks for the, for the discussion, guys. Thanks, Guilherme, for bringing the updates from the previous month. Uh, now a question for uh, Dr. Arruda. We're going to move to our discussion uh, with her today. Uh, Dr. Arruda, you worked uh, with spatial epidemiology analysis developing uh, research in Canada, more specifically in the region of uh, Ontario, enrolling farms to identify possible PERS uh, positive site clusters and collecting demographic and biosecurity data. Could you explain the importance of regional uh, PERS monitoring prog programs? 
Sure. Uh, I'm a little biased. I'm a big fan of regional control projects, uh, whether for PERS or multiple pathogens. Uh, and I think there are several uh, benefits from them. Uh, the first one that I, uh, I would say is just really uh, this program's work as a way to bring everybody together to the table. So as a researcher, uh, a lot of my best questions, I would say, came from those meetings where people were kind of discussing logistics and frequency, but really end up talking about uh, disease prevention, disease control, monitoring, and asking really good questions. So I think just having a way to have people get together, uh, people from different expertise, uh, people from different backgrounds, and just discussing a topic that is important for everyone uh, was one of the positives from these programs. Uh, the other one, I think, is kind of the short-term, almost real-time aspect of it. Uh, we still have a, a, an active project here in Ohio, and people are still using that for alerts, right? So you're just talking about these outbreaks that are happening. Uh, people talk about, hey, I have a, an alert, I have an outbreak here, and this is where those pigs are going next, right? So maybe they're going to be placed in nursery, or maybe they're going directly to slaughter. So it's really helpful for people to know that and people really use that information to plan uh, traffic, routes and, and all of that uh, logistically. So I think that's the other, I would say, more immediate benefit that those programs can uh, can bring. So just kind of a channel of communication for people to talk about uh, things that could be changed and, and uh, cases that could be prevented. And I think the, the third aspect is what I did a lot in Canada and then also uh, with some smaller projects in, in Minnesota, which was kind of the long-term uh, data analysis piece of it. Uh, so a lot of the data that are collected through those projects can uh, be used to try and answer those kind of big pictures questions, right? Mm -hmm. um, so as an example, in Ontario, uh, there's there's always the debate on uh, you know area spread versus kind of long um, kind of long distance spread and we were able to look at that with the data there uh, and we found hotspots so we did find that some uh, parts of Ontario had more cases of PERS that could be due to just area spread uh, which obviously we couldn't differentiate between airborne or others uh, but also we saw that uh, for the other question which was my neighbor is positive and my am I more likely to be positive. Uh, in that case, that was a no, which kind of surprised everybody and really kind of led to another follow-up uh, research that we did looking at networks. So I think those kind of bigger term, as you collect more and more data, they can also be uh, hopefully uh, answered uh, with that type of monitoring and, and data. Andrea, just following up with, uh, about this uh, area spread, you, you said that, of course, in the study was not able to differentiate between airborne and other routes, but based on your overall experience with this network analysis and dealing with uh, uh, area control programs, what would you ex speculate in terms of this, the, the area spread? What, what's, is there uh, uh, a way to rank um, in terms of importance? Is it airborne? Is it uh, people movement? Is it, are there some other topics yeah. there? I think that's the million dollar question, right, Daniel? Which one is more important? And I think if you talk to 10 people, you're going to have five and five with different opinions on which one is uh, the most important. So we weren't able to actually differentiate between that, right? We know it, it's really hard to sample um, and, and sample air to figure out exactly, you know, it was air for sure versus full mitral people transmission 
but our network piece uh, pointed out as uh, the movement and then sharing of things, uh, different service providers we were looking at the time, guilt, bore, uh, truck or transportation, feed sources, all of that appeared to be important in determining uh, outbreaks, especially in our case for grower populations. Uh, so it might even be different, right? And, and in Canada, they didn't have as many uh, farms filtered, for example, and the density was, al was also not as crazy as a region like Iowa. Um, so there's also that to be taken into consideration. The region is, is going to also be, you know, the, the weight of the different factors could be different uh, depending on the region. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's still the million dollar question, right? In every single discussion, this uh, comes up and I don't think we have a good answer. We know both of them occur. I particularly think that uh, the person uh, movement and truck movement is a little bit higher on my list, um, but I know the airborne transmission, we know that it can also happen. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. Another uh, question we get here a lot, uh, Andrea, is what's the importance of transport biosecurity as a means for tra uh, uh, transporting, right, or spreading diseases around? Yeah, and that's a really good question. Uh, I know there is a, a recent call for proposals from Schick, uh, really trying to get at that question. Uh, we know that most of our farms and companies that provide transportation, they have SOPs. Now, how much of that actually get done in a day-to-day -day busy schedule? Uh, I don't think we, we know that for sure. Uh, right. So even when I'm called for disease investigations and people send me their protocol, I, I go, OK, it looks great. What happened on October 4th? Right. We don't know for sure. And we know it's a very fast paced industry. Um, so I, I, I we think it's very important. I personally think it's it's a very important um, mode of transmission for for PERS, PED and other pathogens. We have some data to back that up. We've we've mm -hmm. done some PED studies uh at the time of the outbreaks that we had in 2013, 2014, where we could definitely detect uh, PED uh, on farms that were going to slaughter, even if they were negative farms and then back to other farms. So we know uh, there is a huge gap there. And we know some farms are even baking their trucks, right? But maybe sometimes uh, even the basics of cleaning the cabin frequently and what happens to the driver. Do they help with the transport? Mm -hmm. Do they go in the farm? Mm -hmm. I do think uh, that's data that is very different to capture, uh, but it's uh, there's definitely incentives for doing that because I think as an industry, we are realizing that that's a very important um, gap that we, we may have there. Uh, that makes sense. Pick up your brain on another kind of apply, applied research that you have done with uh, following herds that broke with PERS and tracking time to stability, mm -hmm. right? defined as consistently winning negative pigs. And you found that the herds that broke with the virus that was RFLP 174, 174 they, it took longer for them to achieve stability. So wanted to pick your brain on the importance of tracking such metrics over time, considering that the virus continues to evolve. And uh, so those relationships may, may change over time, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there is a huge value in collecting production data and also monitoring diagnostic-wise over time. Uh, I think that one of the biggest frustrations that I see with producers or veterinarians that have farms that break with PERS is when are things going to get back to normal, right? I think that 
monitoring and looking at data almost in, in a real-time fashion, so near real-time, really helps with expectations. And I think that's very mm -hmm. important, not only for people that are making management decisions, but also for the barn-level employees and workers that are actually working with the animals. So I think that a lot of the data capture and analysis and kind of almost hopefully real-time and, and sampling really helps with setting expectations um, and yeah, we've seen in the past with our some lessons that we learned in the hard way that PERS viruses do behave differently. Uh, even now, right, we hear reports of viruses that are uh, doing a lot of damage and some others that are a little bit milder. And obviously that also has to do with the, the herd type and, and the population and, and history and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but we are learning more, you know, looking at those measures and seeing how close we are to hopefully be having everything under control or even better eliminated. Uh, really helps uh, with uh, with the uh, with the planning. Uh, the other thing that I've seen too is the getting this type of data. So let's say data coming from processing fluids can be used also as a very powerful tool to motivate uh, barn personnel. I feel like, uh, and even if it's not so good news, I think we can still information is still pretty powerful. Uh, and I think we can use that to our advantage to just have people more really excited on, on, you know, trying to prevent and control disease and understanding how it's transmitted. So I think that that can also be uh, one other good point of uh, keeping uh, good data, looking at production records regularly and uh, doing some monitoring. Even for the, the herds that are already endemic, right? You mentioned the processing fluids. It's positive, yes, I know it's positive, but how about the CTs? And so the herd should watch that CT slowly rise or, or time all right week after week at least a trend of increasing ct towards negativity and if you don't monitor you don't know yeah like absolutely. when you said that people should should get allow people to get excited by monitoring closely those results and see progress over time yeah absolutely and i think we also have different sample types that we can also use nowadays and and use that as a learning opportunity to motivate people to to just learn more about disease dynamics i think that's that's very exciting and, and could be used for, yeah, for incentives almost. Mm -hmm. Dr. Huda is still talking about PERS virus, but at some point in a break, we have the question like, do we depopulate this farm or not? So you published some data regarding depopulation as well and the impact in not only the production system, but also in the employees, like how they are thinking about these, this procedure and the different methods that you can use for depopulation. So when do we have to depopulate a farm and what is the, the, the main benefits that we have when we use this kind of method for control virus? virus? Uh, I think you bring a really good point there, Guilherme. And, uh, we've been talking about the population for PERS for decades. Uh, and I think this is a really good uh, time to kind of clarify to the listeners that uh, depopulation can be used for two different purposes. Uh, one of them is if we have something really bad happen, right? So for emergency situations, uh, let's say natural disasters, or if we have an exotic disease detected in the U.S., or even worse, a zoonotic disease detected in, in swine populations in our case. So in those cases, uh, we're going to go for killing all animals as, as quick as possible and as humanely as possible. Uh, so that's a lot of the research that we've been doing uh, for methods that would have been applied in emergency situations. Now, when we talk about PERS, I think we really mean repopulation. So basically emptying the farm, right? And uh, that e either going to be controlled movement for slaughter or we're going to replace those pigs somewhere. 
leaving the form empty for a while, uh, cleaning, disinfecting uh, a lot of times, hopefully, and then repopulating the herd. So obviously, just from the description, this can be a very costly, very expensive process. Um, so that are one of your questions was when this would be recommended or not. Mm. And so from my experience, uh, when people used repopulation for PERS, uh, was usually when they either wanted to uh, change their genetic material. So they took that opportunity to, uh, to basically buy all new animals from a different genetics. Uh, the other option is maybe when uh, there are other endemic diseases that you may also get want to get rid of. So let's say if it's a micro positive, you haven't been successful in elimination projects, uh, that would be a good time to, to maybe repopulate. Uh, like I said, it's a very expensive uh, process, right? So it's going to depend on a lot of things like the, the pricing for cosals. Uh, logistics, right? What are these people? Remember, you're also going to have a production break, right? So it's not only the cost of selling the animals and buying new animals, but also you're going to have a break in production, especially for buying gilts. So what are you going to do with the farm workers in the meantime? Do you have somewhere else they can go work? Uh, how are you going to keep that workforce there, especially for larger farms? Can also be kind of a logistic questions uh, that is going to be weighted on on the decision as well. Um, and the other circumstance in which I've seen people uh, repopulate because of PERS was if they had a negative flow overall. So if all the breeding herds are negative for PERS uh, and maybe uh, most of your nurseries or maybe all of them, we know there is a big value on keeping PERS negative herds, right? So that's another reason uh, why I see people decide for repopulation is where if the, all of the other herds are, are also negative, then they may want to keep the whole flow negative. Um, the other thing to take into account that I know people take very seriously and they should is uh, how does the neighborhood look like, right? Do you have a farm a mile away that is positive? So what is your chances of rebreaking? And if the chances are low, uh, that may be another reason uh, for, for depopulate and repopulate uh, specifically for purse. I think I've touched on, on all the main uh, reasons that I, I think people would decide for a repopulation. I think you did. We did not talk about the virus characteristics yet. Mm -hmm. And one of the hot topics that we are talking nowadays is the co-circulation of multiple strains in the breeding herds. And you have been working on that, about co-detection of these and, and the approach to, to work on, on this arena. So can you elaborate a little bit of how uh, frequent co-detections occur in breeding herds and what is the impact of those co-detections in production parameters and in the health of the animals? Sure. We, yeah, our research that we did in the last few years, uh, unfortunately, we only had five herds uh, enrolled in that particular study, but they were all of different demographics and they were also using different purse strategies or had different purse uh, virus dynamics, I would say. And we, but we did follow them for about a year. So keep in mind, it's a small sample of farms that we, we used for that study. But in that uh, situation, we did see different lineages and variants and the same farm, even in the same uh, day of sampling. So we did see that. I personally think that occurs uh, more often than uh, what we think. I think that's a pretty common uh, event. Uh, we don't. We just don't sample enough to know, right? So as, as Dr. Niari said, you don't know what you don't know. If you don't sample, you won't know. Uh, and we know that sequencing can get expensive quite quickly as well. Um, so I think that uh, the just the occurrence of multiple lineages or variants uh, within farms, especially breeding herds, I, I don't think that's an uncommon find. 
Uh, now to your question on the impact on production, which is a great one. Uh, we did try to get at that question in our study, but uh, we had a limited sample size, so we were not able to get enough data uh, to look at that. But I think one would hypothesize that perhaps if you have more lineages, uh, that could negatively impact your production. That would be uh, kind of my my thoughts on it, but we, we still need to get enough data uh, to to, to investigate that question. And I think we have a lot of production data very commonly. That wouldn't be a problem, but we don't have enough sequencing data, at least not historically, um, because we have been just sequencing one sample uh, kind of as a norm for, for our farms when we have an outbreak or even when monitoring. So, um, you know, it gets expensive, but I, I've been recommending that, especially for tricky cases, or if you are you know, in the middle of your control project or elimination that you do sample uh, multiple, hopefully individual level samples as well to see uh, how many variants uh, you have there. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that was it for today, guys. Thanks a lot for for, for the discussion. Thanks, Dr. Rudo, for, for joining us today. It was a, a really good discussion. And I see you guys next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.